December 7th, 1941, is a date that marks profound tragedy in U.S. history. It is an historical marker of treachery and loss when the Empire of Japan suddenly and deliberately attacked Pearl Harbor. It's a date, as President FDR memorably said, will live on in infamy. This morning we come to an earlier historical episode that marks an infinitely greater tragedy in human history. It's an historical marker of unparalleled treachery and loss when Adam and Eve rejected God's good authority over them and became an authority unto themselves, plunging humanity into sin and darkness. It's a day that truly has lived in infamy ever since. The tragic choice of our earliest ancestors in the Garden of Eden has impacted every generation since, like a waterfall cascading down generation after generation after generation. Rebellion has reached every corner of society with devastating results, hasn't it? Sin, sickness, suffering, and death are the fruits of that tragic day that we see and bear in our lives. And in the wake of that tragic day, we're left with a question. What hope do we have? In the midst of that sin and darkness, devastation, what hope do we have in a world corrupted by sin? This morning, we will unpack the events of that tragic day in the Garden of Eden and answer the question of what hope we have in light of it. So I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the book of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 in the Bibles we provided on your chairs, you can find Genesis 3 on page 2. And if you don't own a copy of the Bible, we love to give free Bibles away. There are several hardback black Bibles on the third bookcase closest to the men's room in the lobby there. Please take one if you need it. If a friend needs it, take it. You don't have to ask any questions. You just take them and give them out. Genesis chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Genesis 3, 1 through 7 is a riveting narrative, a 
sober narrative. And to organize our time in this text, I want to trace the narrative or to follow the arc of the plot. As most good stories, uh, there's a setting, there's rising action, there's a climax, and then there's resolution or, or the, the aftermath. So we're just going to trace that plot arc. There's a setting, there's rising action, there's a climax, and then there's the results or, or the aftermath. So we're just going to trace that storyline, and here's the thrust that we're going to land on. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus Christ prevailed. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus Christ prevailed. So the first stop in the, the plot arc, the setting. Here the setting is a threat in the garden. A threat in the garden. We read in the first verse there, first part of verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, crafty, or cunning, as some translations have it, kind of has a sinister sense, doesn't it? But the reality is this, this Hebrew word, adjective, is rather benign. It's often used in the Proverbs for shrewd or clever, not necessarily sinister, although as we continue the narrative, we see the sinister edge of the serpent, don't we? But at first glance here, we meet a serpent who was a part of God's good creation that the Lord God had made, we see that in verse 1, who is shrewd or clever, not necessarily sinister. The serpent was part of God's good creation. So what is happening here? we begin to see a subversion of God's good order. Evil Satan had evidently entered the Garden of Eden at some undefined time after God created it. We're given very few details. We need to be careful about reading between the lines. We're given very few details here about the origin and the inner workings of, of evil. We just have to work with what we have here. Evidently, Evil has entered in God's creation somehow after God created it. He created it good, good, good. That's, that's the moral designation after God's creative work. But in some undefined time, evil has entered the garden. Satan has hijacked God's good creation. One of God's creatures, Satan, has hijacked this serpent, a beast of the field that the Lord God had made, utilizing abusing the shrewdness of the creature in a sinister way as the serpent interacts with Eve. So we see a, a subversion of God's good creation. Satan comes and misuses, embodies this, this reptile for his evil ends, his evil purposes. And the subversion of God's good order continues. Notice what we read next. He, the serpent, said to the woman. Now, if you're reading fast, you're going to miss this. But if you're reading in context, this should be striking. The serpent speaks. The animal, the reptile speaks. Who has spoken thus far in the narrative? Only two. God and man. God 
and man. But here, the creature, the, the, the reptile, speaks. It's shocking. It's a subversion of God's good design. Adam was the one entrusted with the authority to name the animals. As he's seeking a helper suitable for him, we saw this last week, one after the other parades before him. It's not the right fit, but he is given the speech authority to name, to speak the name of that animal, bird, reptile. Then along comes this speaking serpent, Satan embodied in reptile flesh, subverting God's order, upending God's authority. It's Adam who had the speech authority to name, but here suddenly the serpent speaks. It's shocking. Something sinister is going on here. Who should be speaking right now? Who should be speaking right now? The man, Adam. The one who was originally trusted to work and to keep. Genesis 2 verse 15. The Lord took the man, Adam, put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That verb keep is a protecting word, a guarding word. Someone is asleep on the job. As his wife's about to be deceived, someone's asleep on his job. Not protecting, not keeping, not guarding. Adam was the one who should be speaking. Instead, Adam is abdicating his authority here by not speaking to confronting the serpent who is subverting God's good design. That's the setting. There's a threat in the garden. Secondly, the rising action. The deception of the enemy. This is the rising action. The deception of the enemy. We read in the latter part of verse one through verse five, the anatomy of temptation. The anatomy of temptation. He, the serpent, said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really say, you shall not eat of any of the tree in the garden? Notice what the serpent's doing here. What's he doing? He's twisting God's commands, making God out to be a miser. Satan operates in have-truths. He takes God's word and just twists it a little bit. Has God actually said you can't eat of any tree in the garden? He must be a curmudgeon who is withholding from you, not delighting to give you the good things that you want. He makes God out to be a miser, one who withholds good things from his people. The serpent casts the shadow of doubt in the mind of Eve, where she's wondering, is God good? Can I trust him? Does he have my best interest in mind? Oh, friends, beware the seed of doubt towards God's goodness. Beware the danger of doubting God's goodness. Questioning, does he actually have my best interests in mind? The answer is, he's got his best interests in mind 
and you through union by faith in him, those are your best interests as well, even though your circumstances may not suggest that. He knows what he's doing in our lives. He is forever faithful. Not one of his promises fails. Beware the danger of doubting God's goodness. Ah, does he really know what he's doing in this area of my life, in this relationship, or this lack of relationship, or this need that I have that is seemingly going unmet, in this area of suffering and pain and disappointment? Is God really good? Oh, friends, many, many have turned away from the good Lord because of a doubt of his goodness. Is he really good? The serpent makes the Lord out to be a miser. You can't eat of any of these trees. Then Eve responds to the serpent in verse 2. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Well done, Eve. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Well done, Eve. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, what do you notice about Eve's communication about the command of God? She's about at 80%. She's about at 80%. She's adding, though, to the commandments. Nowhere did God say you can't touch it. So she's foggy on the command of God. She's, she's foggy. There's a lack of clarity in her mind on what the command is. Well, who heard the command directly? That's a key question. Who heard the command directly from the mouth of the Lord? The man did. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the question is, where's Adam? And why is the serpent going to Eve first? The serpent continues to subvert God's good order. Adam was formed first. He is the head. He has a leadership and authority role. Satan bypasses that, goes to the helper first, bypassing the one who heard the command directly from the Lord. Satan is subverting God's good design, his good order all over the place. Adam wasn't foggy on the command. But Adam is silent right now. We'll find out where he is in just a moment. Well, the onslaught of temptation continues in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Now compare the approach of the serpent and the approach of Eve in terms of God's command, God's word. Notice Eve adds to it. Satan subtracts from it. Ah, you surely won't die. Both are dangerous. Eve adds to the command. The serpent subtracts from it. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, you shall not add to the word of the Lord, nor take away from it. Likewise repeated in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, beware adding to the word. In legalism, beware taking from the word in licentiousness. You got to stick with the word. Stick with the word. Stick with the Truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Stick with the truth, the whole truth. In other words, don't subtract from it. And nothing but the truth, don't add to it. Eve's adding, the serpent's subtracting. Both are dangerous. 
clarity on and clinging to the word of the Lord is our guard in the hour of temptation. Oh, and we're going to see it masterfully in the master himself, the Lord Jesus, in his hour of temptation. Clarity on and clinging to the word of the Lord is our guard in the hour of temptation. Eve's adding, she's foggy. Satan's subtracting. Let's look again at verses four and five. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Powerful, powerful temptation. You will be like God. What is the serpent offering Eve? Authority, rulership, reign. You will be like God. You will be in his place, his position. But that is a position we were never intended to occupy. You will be like God. You will have the control. You will be in the position of authority. A position we were never intended to occupy. Satan is operating out of deception here. Speaking have truths. Notice what he says. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened knowing good and evil. Well, that's partly true. Their eyes will be opened as we see in the aftermath. Their eyes will be opened, but it will be a knowledge that they do not want. A knowledge that leads to their shame. The end of the innocence that they had in their state of obedience. It is a knowledge that isn't good that leads to their shame. He's operating in have truths. That's what he does. He twists the word of God for his purposes, deceiving humanity. You surely will not die. But in reality, there will be a totality of death as a result of the fall. Physical death, yes, it won't come immediately, but it will come. Physical death, spiritual death, yes, which is simply separation from God, our source of spiritual life, cut off from him and that spiritual vitality and ultimately eternal death. The end game of rebellion is eternal death, separation from God in a real place of conscious torment called hell. That's end game of death. Physical death, spiritual death, and eternal death. There's a totality here that does come upon sin. So the setting, a threat in the garden, the rising action, the deception of the enemy. Thirdly, the climax, rebellion among God's image bearers. Rebellion among God's image bearers. Let's look together at verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, notice the repetition of seeing words, sight words, words of the eyes, eyes, saw. It's indicative of the lust of the eyes, craving, seeing, wanting. We're a visually stimulated people. The eyes, seeing, craving, desiring, lusting. 
And notice what they're forsaking. What sense are they forsaking? The auditory sense, hearing, listening to the good word of the Lord. You see, the Christian faith is an auditory faith. We are a visually oriented people, but the Christian faith is an auditory faith. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Satan's operating in the visual, offering all kinds of temptations and seeing where the word of the Lord was given in an auditory way. Christianity is an auditory faith. We must cling to the command of the Lord given to us, spoken to us, to our ears through his word. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And then we come across this haunting abdication of leadership. One of the most haunting words for a husband in the Bible. Eve took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So finally we get the answer to the question, where was Adam? Where was Adam this whole time? Where was the one who was entrusted primarily with the calling to keep and to guard, who was given the command directly from the mouth of the Lord? Where is Adam? Well, we find out. He was there the whole time, just kind of in the shadows, sitting back and watching his wife, his precious, beautiful wife, in the onslaught of temptation. He's sitting there passively, silently. That's where Adam was. Husbands, and I'm speaking to myself, your temptation more often than not is to be passive, to sit back not to lead your wife spiritually, not to lead your home, not to take the initiative, not to take responsibility, not to read the word with your kids and your wife to pray with her. In the hour of temptation, in the hour of heat and decision-making, you're going to kind of step back and let your wife bear the brunt. Don't do it. You and I, we're going to do it imperfectly, but take the initiative. Step into what God has called you to do and lead. Don't dominate. Don't be harsh, but lead. Your wife will bless you for it, albeit you will do it imperfectly. Lead. Beware passivity. Beware silence and speechlessness. Step into what the Lord has called you to do. And protect what he's entrusted to you. Adam was with her the whole time, sitting back in silence. Husbands, lead your homes spiritually. Wield the word of the Lord in a broken world. Adam and Eve, as image bearers, collectively, both are to blame in different ways. They're culpable in different ways, but collectively have rebelled against God as his image bearers. And this rebellion has been passed on through every generation since it's in each person's heart. We desire to rule, to be in control. You never have to teach a young person how to be an authority unto themselves. It's innate. We've got to teach them to surrender to the Lord, which is the source of life. The setting, a threat in the garden, the rising action, the deception of the enemy, the climax, rebellion among God's image bearers. Fourthly, and finally, the aftermath, the aftermath. Sin breeds shame. 
in the aftermath. Sin breeds shame. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the end of innocence that they had and enjoyed and shared in their obedience. Leaning into the word of the Lord provided them a freedom and an innocence that is corrupted after doing what God told them not to do. It's the end of innocence that they had received and maintained through obedience to God. Now they know something about themselves and their sin and their sense of unworthiness that estranges them from one another such that they're grasping for leaves in the garden to cover up themselves. They don't want each other to find out who they are. And so goes the hiding that we run to, the hiding places, the darkness, the secrecy because of our sin, because we fear being found out. It's in each one of our hearts, men loved darkness. Why, John 3? Because they do the deeds of the flesh in the dark. We think we are unseen. The Lord sees all of it. Next week, we will continue with this question that the Lord asks the man, where are you? That's not a locational question. It's a spiritual question. Where are you spiritually? You're hiding from me because of your sin. The invitation in the gospel is to step out of the darkness into the light, to let God see you, sin and all, that you can be exposed and redeemed and cleansed. Next week is a continuation of the awful aftermath. I'm just sneak previewing it here, but all the consequences, that's just continuation of the aftermath of Adam and Eve's sin. What I'd like to do now for the remainder of our time is to consider the second Adam. We see the sin, the disobedience of the first Adam that has cascaded to every generation since. This gets at a word that we call headship or representation. The act of one, the first Adam, he represents everybody else. His actions become our actions. And so it is with the second Adam, Jesus Christ. His actions are appropriated to us. Through one man's sin, all became sinners. Through one man's act of obedience, all become righteous. I want to look with you at another hour of temptation where Satan threw everything he had in his book of deception and how our Savior responded. Luke chapter 4 Verses 1 through 12. Let's just read and reflect briefly on these words. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, the most understated understatements in the Bible, he was hungry. 40 days without food. He was hungry. Now let's just pause here and draw out the comparison. It is staggering. Just pause here. Consider the situation of Adam and Eve versus the situation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Adam and Eve in the garden, flush with fruit. Jesus Christ in the desert, no food. Jesus Christ in isolation. Adam and Eve had each other. Full of food, no food. If you were a betting person, who are you putting your money on? I mean, it's not even, it's not even close. Adam and Eve have everything that they need. They are set up for success, we use that expression. Jesus is set up for failure, isolated, without food, in the desert. On paper, who is more likely to fail? Who is more likely to prevail? Oh, praise God for the strength of his son. The devil said to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command this stone to be bread. What's he doing? He's casting doubt on the word of the Lord. Jesus has just been baptized. He's been named the son of, the, son of God. God has articulated that. Satan's casting doubt on the word of the Lord. He's doing what he did to Eve. If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Use your authority unto yourself. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Power in the hour of temptation is clarity on and clinging to the word of the Lord. What's Jesus doing? It is written, Deuteronomy 83, man shall not live on bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I'll give all this authority and their glory. For it has all been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will just worship me, just bow down, Jesus, it will all be yours. What's Satan trying to entice our Lord with? Glory. Glory power. It's all Jesus anyway, but it doesn't come that way. It comes through obedience and surrender to the point of death, even death on a cross. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. He's bringing the word in the hour of temptation, clarity, clinging to the word. And then finally, verse 9, he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed him into an opportune time. That third round of temptation, Jesus is confronting Satan with the word of the Lord. That promise in Psalm 91 is not to test the Lord, but to trust the Lord. And Jesus surrenders himself to the Lord, clinging to the word, clarity in the word. Where Adam and Eve failed, Jesus Christ prevailed. He is our ultimate head. His act of obedience is appropriated to us as sinners by faith. So if you trust in Jesus Christ, all of your sin is washed away. All of your disobedience is taken and his perfectly obedient record becomes yours by faith. That is the gospel. He is our head. Just as Adam was 
our head in failure and sin, Jesus prevailed in victory. Therefore, we have hope. We have hope. By faith in the victorious person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saved and set free from sin, forgiven and restored in right relationship with our creator. This is a gift to you and to me made available by faith. We'd hear and believe. There is a stunning transformation in a phrase found in this scripture carried on into the New Testament. What is that phrase? Take and eat. Take and eat. Adam and Eve take and eat an action of rebellion. Years later, our better head, Jesus Christ, will invite us to take and eat an invitation to salvation. What a transformation in a phrase from death to life, from darkness to light. God will have to endure humiliation, suffering, and death before take and eat can become verbs of salvation. But friends, he has done it through the work of Christ. This is our glorious invitation to the table of the Lord to take and eat, displaying our fellowship with him and with one another as we remember his broken body, his shed blood. And it's to that table that we come today. If you're a believer in Christ, I wanna invite you to partake with us of the bread and the cup. If you're not a believer in Christ, we're so glad that you're here. My encouragement and instruction to you is to abstain from the Lord's Supper, but to consider what the elements in the Lord's Supper represent, his broken body, his shed blood, that you might trust in what he's done for you and be forgiven of all of your sins. If you had, haven't had an opportunity to, to pick up the bread and the cup, you can do so just in a, in a moment in the lobby. Uh, I'm going to, to pray and then lead us in the time of the Lord's Supper. Father, thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your provision. Thank you for your word that you have given to us, ears to hear. Help us to cling to it and have clarity on it. In the hour of temptation, God, give us your good word. Empower us by your spirit to abide in it. Thank you, Jesus, for coming and enduring temptation, bearing our sin, bearing our shame, bearing our separation, rising again from the grave so that we could be reunited to you, forgiven of all our sins, made new and clean. God, I pray that that would be the message of our church, that would be the message of our lives and of our lips as we share it to other people. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.